Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. As part of being human, our heart gets broken again and again and again and again. We do not get out of the human experience without experiencing loss and grief and heartbreak. And that can be... Um, not only uh, different situations, experiences that break our heart and not just romance or death, but also we can also experience the grief at the loss and the heartbreak at the loss of aspects of ourselves. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Donna Lancaster, and she has been a pioneer in community healing for nearly 31 years. She's a facilitator, a coach, and a therapist who was formerly the head of teaching at the Hoffman Institute UK and co-created the Bridge Retreat, a six-day transformational personal development experience. Donna's work has been featured in leading publications from The Telegraph, Psychologies, The Evening Standard, The Huffington Post, and many, many others. Donna's groundbreaking work was featured in the Amazon Prime documentary called Loved, which followed 12 people during her life-changing bridge retreat as they take the leaf to overcome grief and loss in their lives. Her new book, The Bridge, a nine-step crossing into authentic and wholehearted living, is such a gift to us all. Donna shares her 31 years of wisdom, and while you read it, you can feel that deep healing presence on every page. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? I would say off the top of my <laughs> head, the one of the ones that I love is, if you do not transform your pain, you will always transmit it. That was by uh, Richard Raw. I just love that because it's just such a reminder that sometimes when we're struggling, if we're on a kind of healing path, that what we're doing is transforming something so that we don't actually leak it out into the wider world. And I always say that, you know, we are healing our individual wounds in service to the collective ones. So, yeah, that's one of my faves. And I imagine, obviously, you see this in your work the whole time. People doing this unconsciously, we don't even realize we're projecting our wounds. No, absolutely. It happens all the time. And I mean, I was, you know, the queen of transmitting my pain for like 20 years. So I, I know a thing or two about, about that, about how, you know, life is all about essentially getting back to that place of flow. And, um, uh, you know, because mm. of life events, often we get 
into constriction and blocks in the body. And so, you know, it's that thing of from those blocked aspects of ourself, our pain has to go somewhere. And that's where it starts to leak out. And it leaks out, as you know, in all these different ways, in health issues inside ourselves, and also um, outside into, you know, our relationships, how we feel about ourselves, and just the wider community, you know, so it's personal and it's political. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, as we as I say in my women's work, and um, you know, as one woman woman cries, we all cry. As one woman heals, we all heal. And I, I feel that about everybody. You know, you're you're not just doing it for yourself. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? I mean, I'm always quoting other people, but um, you know, Russell Brand once said something on a, one of his stage shows where he said his life was a series of embarrassing incidents strung together. And I think that's the lesson that I've been reminded of is about the power of humility. You know, it's this thing when Mm. we're what I call nose down in humility street. It's that the dirt's still fresh on our nose and we're so keen to get up and look up and say, oh, but it's a beautiful day. And there's a gift that down there in the dirt. And every time I fall back nose down into humility street, I am reminded of, uh, you know, stay there long enough. And I'm not talking about wallowing, but stay there long enough to get the gift, you know. Gosh, I relate to that a lot, considering (laughs) the fact that no matter how hard I try, always things go slightly wrong. Yeah. How do you understand soul? For me, it's like the understanding of the soul isn't something that you can necessarily verbalize, although I know many Mm. people have tried to, because it's beyond words. But if I was going to try and squeeze that expansion that is soul into this tiny box of kind of words and knowledge and understanding, I would say for me, it's this sense of this oneness. Soul is really about this ultimate interconnected nature of all beings and the and the kind of wisdom behind that. And it, it's really hard to put into words. But I think when you've met your own version of soul, when you've connected to soul and most people have even if they wouldn't put that label on it when you know when you're looking at a sunset or in a baby's eyes or whatever it might be those moments when you're not conscious of being even human or gender specific or any of those things you're just in that moment and that's a remembering of soul of what it means to connect to soul I believe. So I really wanted to begin this interview by actually reading some of your book, especially uh, some of the beginning, because it starts off by talking about the heartbreaks that we all have. And I just thought this bit was so beautiful. Please. Perhaps your early heartbreaks began as a child when your parents divorced or when they let you down or didn't listen to you. Maybe it was when you were bullied at school or when you were ignored all night at the youth club disco. Maybe later you failed your exams or were dumped by your first love or went on to leave your marriage or lost a company that you've slogged for years to build up. Perhaps you missed the opportunity to become a parent. Maybe you betrayed yourself or were betrayed. You lost a parent, a partner, a friend or a pet. Perhaps you lost your innocence, your hope or even your mind. When I read this piece, it just cracked me open because I thought, wow. I mean, I could relate to four of those heartbreaks. And I'm sure so many people listening, it resonates with them too. Why was it important for you to begin the book and also this be so integral to your work to teach people about heartbreak? 
I think the thing that's really important to me is that people associate this idea of heartbreak with romance and this idea of grief with bereavement and it's put into this tiny little box and those are the only kind of understanding so when I say to people I work with grief they immediately think I'm a bereavement counsellor you know and when I say to people that I work with heartbreaks they think that it's kind of like relationship intimate relationships only and so I really, with this book and with my work, because of my understanding of the human condition, is I wanted to expand that that understanding and deepen the understanding of, as part of being human, our heart gets broken again and again and again and again. We do not get out of the human experience without experiencing loss and grief and heartbreak. And that is, as you said, as you read so beautifully, that can be... Um, not only uh, different situations, experiences that break our heart and not just romance or death, but also we can also um, experience the, the grief at the loss and, and the heartbreak at the loss of aspects of ourselves. And that's the bit that I really wanted to stress is that it's really a massive heartbreak to for example, to lose your innocence uh, too early as a child, you know, that's a massive heartbreak. And so I really wanted to just, yeah, expand that people's understanding of what it means to have our heart broken and that we're in it together. That's the other thing, because it's like, we all experience it because we live in this whole culture where it's, you know, we're sort of force-fed this idea of perfection which I as you know the same as you I'm so against and I think it's what you know it's a great marketing strategy to make us feel inadequate so we buy stuff drink stuff eat stuff whatever it might be and and um, I think you feel less alone when you realize like I can look at you and you can look at me and it's like yeah me too you know my heart here's my heart and see the scars and you can kind of go yeah me too here's my scars and here's those bits that are still a little bit open and not quite tended to yet and that's so comforting I think so beautiful so beautiful and you move on to talk about how heartbreak manifests and I think Again, this probably is quite surprising for people. And do you find that when you're teaching people about the long lasting impacts of unhealed hearts? Yeah, I think I wrote at the beginning of the book about this woman, Rachel, and she's an example of how many people they kind of say, you know, I had a great childhood or everything was, it was okay. You know, there were some struggles and there were some difficulties and yeah, I faced a few challenges, but don't we all? It's almost like they feel guilty, especially if they're financially privileged. If they grew up in a nice house with a nice car and they went to a nice school, it's like, I'm not allowed to admit that I have experienced heartbreak. That's only allowed for people that haven't got money or, you know what I mean? And it's like, no, we, and that's what really destroys people's lives is this sense of like I'm not allowed to say ouch you know that broke my heart and so when people understand like Rachel in the book that broader definition that actually yeah my mum and dad were lovely but they worked a lot to make all this money and so I felt really lonely as a child like that's like liberation when you understand and it's not about wallowing it's not about navel gazing it's about healing it's about saying ouch and, and expressing and feeling that out so that you don't have to carry it with you the rest of your life and leak it out all over people, especially people who try to love you, you know. So I think, yeah, people do 
almost start crying with the relief of it Poppy it's like oh my goodness like I'm allowed in this space like the bridge retreat or other groups that I now run it's like in this space it's okay for me to say that really hurt and actually the money wasn't enough as an example you know I was lonely. It's amazing how we do so quickly assume somebody must have had an okay life if they have had, as you said, any experience of privilege or money. It, it's amazing how much we think money can solve emotional wounds. It, yeah. It's incredible how little sympathy we do give people. Where do you think that comes from? Where do you think this kind of like, oh, well, if you had, you know, financial security, then surely you were fine? The patriarchy, (laughs) you know, is that real toxic masculine model of achievement and that, you know, men suffer from the patriarchy as women do, but that real, that model of achievement and go get and, and, you know, it's all about how much you have and all of these things, which is all outside in living, as we know, and you're trying to get something outside of yourself to fill you up and good luck with that. You know, and I think what happens is it gets into the the haves and the have nots. And, you know, my mum always used to say, oh, how the other half live, you know. And it was like this. That was one of the sayings. You know, I came from a very working class background. And so then when I started working with people with titles, famous people, people with a lot of money, you know, and it was such a leveler, you know, because it was like, when somebody's in your arms with snot bubbles coming out of their nose, <laughs> it's like your heartbreak is the same as mine because it is. I think the overriding thing is the patriarchal model, which is hopefully slowly crumbling, that kind of uh, limits us in terms of um, thinking that it's all about finances or what car you drive. Who ugh, who cares, you know? When you peel all those false layers away, it's, you know, my heart meeting your heart. And, and um, yeah, and it can sound a bit, you know, to some people who perhaps are unconsciously too in pain with their heart, with their own unhealed heartbreaks. It's scary stuff. But as I always say to clients, it's no more scary looking inside into your broken heart and healing it. It's much less scary than living half a life as in half the life you were meant to live a smaller life than you were meant to live that's really really painful how do you help people look back without being re-traumatized by the past yeah it's a good question because I am obviously I've worked with a lot of traumatized people and and honestly I think many many people don't realize that they are traumatized because childhood for many people is traumatizing. You know, Mm -hmm. it is, you know, that broad, again, a broader definition of of trauma is really that impact of not getting your needs met and getting exposed to different things and different situations where you're powerless because as children, we are powerless and we, we, we rely on our families, our parents for our very life. And so if they're not able to fully meet our needs, that can be traumatizing. So um, by making sure that they pace themselves, it's like with this book, it's like really making sure people uh, take their time, that they pace themselves, that they don't go into overwhelm. And as I say in the beginning of this book, this book isn't for the, the people that have got really, you know, intense 
post-traumatic stress disorders, for example, this is not the book for you, that that's something that you could do in therapy. But this book is about supporting those people that kind of know that there's stuff in their closet that maybe just needs to be laid to rest. And also, I think the wonderful thing about trauma for me is that it it keeps us safe. So often people will not go there unless they start to feel this sense of safety in their own uh, body or in their own environment. So I know that's true, you know, with my work in my work, like sometimes people will get frustrated because they want to kind of have this big, you know, grieving experience or big healing, same thing. And their trauma kind of goes, mm, not yet, I'm not ready. And I think, great, you know, because you've got to trust that that trauma survival response is there for a reason. And it's only when people start to feel safe enough that they can kind of open up and, and start to look at what they need to. And lots of traumatized people, they also don't remember the details. And there's a reason for that, you know, and yet you still kind of your body remembers. You know, you might not have, you know, some of our wounding, as you I'm sure, you know, is pre-verbal. So some, you know, I knew in utero, in my mother's womb, I knew that I was unwelcome. And I obviously I didn't know that consciously, but it, I, the work that I've done, I know that I came into the world feeling unwelcome. Um, and there's not kind of details. I can't say because of it. I just know, you know, and it's that wise part of myself knows that I already arrived feeling unwelcome. So, yeah, I think trauma can can keep us safe and we have to do things at a slow pace and not not rushed because then we go into overwhelm. So it's really more tortoise than hare. I think it's a really important point that you make about this taking it slow and and realising what parts of us may want to keep on to the trauma for, as you said, for the reasons that it keeps us safe, which actually is such a mind boggling concept right why on earth would we want to keep on to our trauma can you share any examples of people you've worked with where they had the intention of yes I want to heal but actually when it came to it it became very difficult for them yeah of course I think I'd be I'd feel more comfortable to share my own experience of that yeah 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 of course because it just feels you know, like so much of my work is based on, you know, what I've experienced yeah. and learned the learning and training that I did as a result of that. And so, you know, I am somebody that was deeply traumatized as a child and, and I held unconsciously so much of that trauma in my body. And then I was trying to, what I say, you know, live from the neck up and trying not to go anywhere near my heart, you know, energetically because it was too painful. And so I got to a point, you know, as I've written about in the book at the beginning, where it was, you know, the, my body took over and brought me literally back to Humility Street, nose down into that lady's loo, you know, on the floor. And it was like my body, I had a full blown panic attack. I thought I was dying. I thought it was, you know, and anyone of your listeners that's had a panic attack, we know, you know, this is, this is not just mild anxiety. <laughs> this feels like, you, you're dying and I felt like I, I'm absolutely not going to live through this you know but that was the miracle of my trauma stopping me at a point where it was like my body just went shut down I can't do this anymore and I went into complete overwhelm basically I surrendered because I didn't think I thought okay I'm going to die of course in a lady's toilet that would be so my my bag you know and I just sort of surrendered to my face like oh this is it this is the end you know and then and then something you know and I write about it as a portal because that's what it 
was is that I am a very visual person and I kind of saw this image of like my my wounds as a, a sort of opening and it was like I had to physically crawl through and it sounds a bit out there but this is kind of when you reach those pivotal moments in life it is like that transcendent experience you know and so so for me I crawled through that portal and I started to do the real healing work that I needed to do which wasn't just talky talky therapy which was amazing by the way it's not about but I needed you know trauma lives in the body grief lives in the body emotions live in the body you have to involve the body in the process of healing but to answer your question so I I then would go to this amazing woman that was like a body whisperer incredible you know she would kind of place her hands on me and have images of what had happened to me and it sounds out there but it was really accurate and so I would go in and Donna the traumatized kind of conscious version of myself would go in and say yeah I'm ready to heal so I'd lie on that couch and kind of you know help me but my body would say no thanks you know so it was like my the trauma in my body wasn't ready even though I was, if that makes sense. So it was like my body took, which normally it does, is our body takes a little bit longer to catch up with the point where we say, actually, I need to do something about this. And so even though I was lying on the couch, like, do whatever, you know, <laughs> take my trauma from me, which she can't anyway, but but it was, it, you know, she was a real trauma specialist. And But my body, she said, as soon as she touched me, my body, she got an image of this child going, you know, like this, like blocking. And, and that's really what it was. And I, it took time, a process of gently, gently allowing my body to feel safe enough to catch up with my readiness to heal. You set out these nine steps in the book, which take you along a journey. And step two is birth of the false self. So I'd love to hear what do you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, the full self is is what I also call the forgetting. So I describe in the book this version of the kind of innocence and, and wonder of all of us, which is my grandson, Theo, as an example. You know, my grandson, if he if he's hot, he'll just take all his clothes off. You know, he's five now. And it's like, so if he's hot, it makes sense. You just take all your clothes. It doesn't matter where you are. You know, it's that kind of lack of inhibition, that freedom that we all had as children. And then what happens is these heartbreaks, the small and the big tears and ruptures and in, in our heart through our experiences as part of the human condition. And then slowly, you know, and some sadly sooner than others for some people when they're wounded very early in childhood, is that slowly, slowly we start to realise that, first of all, we have to hide some of that pain to be able to function. And secondly, that we have to take on roles within our family, within our community, within society to be acceptable, to not run around naked, you know, to belong. So we start to really, because we're so tribal, we start to really say, okay, maybe if I'm good, my mum will love me. You know, that was one of my roles. That was one of my uh, ways of being in my family that I tried maybe she'll notice me if I'm really quiet and really good and that's what we do is we take on roles in the family and we put on masks to reinforce those roles you know so I tried all of those in my own family and when they didn't work I tried a different set but it, all of that is the birth of the false self and it happens really incrementally and then before we know it at some point like me when I was 30 years old I had no idea who 
that true version of myself, the Theo version of myself, I just didn't even remember because that was the forgetting. It was all those heartbreaks put in a box, all that pain put in a box, all those masks I was wearing. And it was like, who am I? You know, because in this environment, I'm I'm social party girl Donna. You know, I'm, I'm the life and soul. I'm an extrovert. All not true. Um, all those, you know, out with my friends. And then there was at home, I'm like the angry, resentful version of myself, all false, you know. And then it was like all these different aspects, which are really the false self. And we have to kind of deconstruct those to get back to our own version of little Theo. And in the book, you offer lots of really, really useful exercises for people to be able to access back to the true self. Why do you encourage self-parenting in this? I think self-parenting is if you take one tool from this whole book, it would be that if you really recognize that perhaps you had a less than perfect childhood, which is everyone. Um, <laughs> and, and then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And you you recognize that there are parts of you that that are wounded you know even as an adult when when a relationship didn't work out when maybe you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see all of those things they usually if you follow the trail they began much earlier than the present day you know it's like if if a partner ends the relationship and you feel abandoned I always say to somebody where did you first feel that abandonment where did you first feel that and it's usually much much earlier and so once you've made those connections, if you can, or even if you can't, a really great resource is to learn how to parent yourself. Because what most of us do is we parent ourselves, i.e. treat ourselves the way our parents treated us, because they were like gods to us. And so self-parenting as an experience is learning to nurture and nourish yourself and welcome those parts of yourself when they get triggered rather than what we normally do is say oh I felt insecure when I did that podcast with Poppy I felt like you know a bit stupid I felt oh and then we go into judgment like how can I be so like stupid that I didn't know what link to click on and we go into that whole inner critic all of that and it's negative self-parenting it's like this, I'm, I'm treating myself really harshly because I was treated harshly as a child. Whereas self-parenting is about compassion, essentially. It's about, okay, there's a part of me that feels that little girl, you know, that felt like eight years old and she felt a bit stupid because she didn't understand some stuff at school, as an example. And then it's like, okay, what would you do with an eight-year-old child that felt inadequate? You'd love her. 
you'd say, you know, that's okay. You know, how we talk to our friends is how we need to talk to ourselves. You know, how we speak to children, be they, be they ours or other people, is how we need to learn. And it is a learning, it is a practice to say, okay, yeah, I, I screwed up, I clicked on the wrong link. And that's all right, because, you know, I'm somebody that's still worthy of respect. I don't need to berate myself. And it, it is a kind of unlearning of the negative parenting to start to relearn a new way of um, being in connection with yourself. And that's the self-parenting. It's like holding the hand of that eight-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 12-year-old that gets triggered and saying, from your wisdom, I've got you. And everybody knows how to do that if anyone's ever had contact with an animal, like a dog or a, or a child. You know how to love another being because you've done it. And it's just learning to then say, I'm also worthy of that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, what is woundology? Yeah, woundology is uh, a term that was, as I understand it, was created by a wonderful woman, a spiritual teacher I love called Caroline Mays. She talks about woundology as an over-identification with our wounds. So it's when we're hurt, you know, we've had all these past heartbreaks and we don't know even that they're affecting us and then our wounds leak out everywhere. But then we, through not doing any work on ourselves, through not kind of healing those wounds, we become overly identified with them. So these, you know, an example is um, I used to work in women's refuges and some of the women, and I understand where it comes from, but it was really like they would almost introduce themselves. It was like, oh, hi, my name's, you know, Carol, and I was sexually abused as a child. And it's like, whoa, you know, and there's nothing, obviously they wanted to be witnessed. They wanted to be heard in that about their their pain but it became almost more than trying to heal it it was like their very identity mm. so so you see it sometimes where people go yeah I can't help being an asshole in a relationship <laughs> you know I can't help being an asshole in this relationship because my mum didn't love me that's woundology mm. it's like using it as a weapon an excuse you know it's an excuse to then behave in ways that are unpleasant and also not do the hard kind of healing work in order to let that story go. So yeah, that's woundology is an over-identification with your wounds. It's interesting because I feel like me myself, I mean, I definitely can be like, well, just because, you know, this happened when I was little, I'm like, you know, it's just so easy to have those conversations when we're trying to explain our behavior. And you're right, it's a, a bit of a, you know, mirroring, a mirror facing moment. When yes. you have to say, oh, actually, this requires more healing rather than more validating. Yes. Let's be clear here. We're not saying that, you know, when I say that to people, it's not to say that you're that you shouldn't share your story. You absolutely need to share your story with benevolent witnesses, with people that will have kind eyes and open hearts and listen to you from and through their heart. That's absolutely essential. You know, it's like picking a scab on a wound when you keep saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing that because my dad didn't love me. And, and yeah, and that happened because, oh, it's because my dad didn't love, it's like you're just never letting it heal. You just, it just starts to scab over and then you're like, pick, 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 you know, and that's not the healing that I'm interested in. That's not the healing that the world needs. There comes a point, like I share my story only in service to other people. I've got no, 
desire or need to talk about what happened to me as a child for my own benefit because I've let that wound and that scab heal over. And yes, there's a scar there, but I don't need to pick it. Really, really, really powerful. And it's definitely resonated with me. And certainly some of the work I'm personally really focusing on right now. And there was another part of the book that I thought, ooh, <laughs> and that is in step eight, where you write, where there is light, there is always shadow. And, and this reminds me of a conversation I had yesterday when someone said, but don't you think when you grow your light, you also potentially grow your shadow too? And I would love to ask what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. And shadow is a little bit like grief. It's like you can clear a room, a, a, a gathering, at a party with the, if you mention shadow, if anyone understands <laughs> what that means, and grief, you know, it is really like a conversation, a room clearer. Because, you know, especially the sort of um, spiritual bypass, what I call the spiritual, you know, what's known as the spiritual bypass, which is people that are only looking up, they're only interested in ascension, and they don't want to actually deal with the very human experiences of life, which is messy and shadowy and layered. You know, they're just like, yes, 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 but it's all love and light. I think it's absolutely true that the more your light expands, the more your shadow expands. Because if you think about the physicality of a shadow, that is also true. And the beautiful thing, as you as you heal your wounds, the next sort of phase really is shadow work. I can't remember who it was that said that, you know, if you see yourself in terms of being a, on a spiritual path, there is no spirituality without shadow work. You know, it really is. It's almost like the wounds is the first phase, healing our wounds. Um, and then it's like, and then daring to look at the shadow. But we don't do that right at the beginning because it's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> and then it's like really saying, yeah, there's a part of me that is, you know, like Theo, that is my true self and, and is full of light and love and peace and joy. And absolutely, she's in abundance. And there's a part of me that is a right asshole, Poppy. There's a part of me that can be, I had it yesterday when I was queuing for something and I was judgmental and I was <laughs> critical. It all, you know, I turned to my friend and I'm like, they could have said that before we queue for heart. You know, Moni, all right? Anyone that knows me knows I'm a right old Mona, you know, and I'm all right with that because those parts are the shadow aspects of me. You know, shadow is the bits that we disown, the bits that we deny, the bits that we see and project onto others. That's all our shadow. And when we shine our light of awareness on it, when we say, yeah, there's a part of me that's a bit of an arsehole sometimes, that is what shrinks it. It's the consciousness piece. It's saying, but not to deny that it's there. Don't kid yourself. You're all love and light. You know, anyone that says, you know, it's the kind of good vibes only with all respect. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to sort of sidestep away from you when you say that. It's like, mm-hmm, because I'm not carrying your shadow for you. Thanks very much. So we really, if we do, you know, as you and I are, and no doubt your listeners are, most of them will be on some kind of, whether they would call it that or not, an awakening, a spiritual path that is living consciously, you know, and so we have to shine our light of awareness onto our shadow and say, yep, there's a part of me that is an arsehole, <laughs> as an example. And then that doesn't mean that we go, oh, yeah, I can let it run amok. We, you know, we dial it down. And there's also always a gift in our shadow as well. So an example of a shadow part of myself that I used to deny was, I mean, hilarious, uh, anyone who knows me, I used to try to deny 
the fact that I was controlling. Ha ha. And, you know, and it was like a joke. Yeah. It's like, uh, but it was, uh, you know, I always say the shadow is the back of your head because you often can't see it. It's your blind spot. And so when I actually said, got really honest with myself, when several people said, you're so controlling, and I stopped being reactive and started going, mm, yeah, maybe I am. And when I shone my light of awareness, I, I could see that there was a gift in that as well, because when I dialed it down, it makes me a great leader. Powerful work. I'm now skipping around your steps a bit. No worries. Step seven, you talk about encouraging people to return to childishness and playfulness. And what, what are the best ways to be playful, especially for people who may have created lives that do not have that much space for playfulness and childishness? You know, they have so many responsibilities on their plate and they're just wading through. Yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, it's not childish so much as childlike because childish mm. I associate with kind of reactive and wounded childish reactions, whereas childlike is more like the Theo I described, the kind of innocence and joy and curiosity and like, wow. But but that yeah. childlike part that we're trying to cultivate, the first thing people can do is think about what they used to love doing as a child. What did I do as a child that was kind of a bit, playful or you know did I like to climb trees did I like to dance did I like to like for me I used to make up like um performances in front of my <laughs> dolls you know and I used to sing and dance and what do I like to do now when I'm in that playful I loved I, I sing I dance every day I love singing anyone that knows me knows I love singing and it's not about having a good voice it's not about being a good dancer it's allowing that childlike energy to flow through you because otherwise, what are we doing all this work for, Poppy? Do you know what I mean? It's like we want to reactivate that wonder, that joy, that kind of life force. This is when you, un, um, you know, defrost the blocked parts of yourself that have been frozen. And, and how we defrost them, by the way, is by applying warmth. That's what defrosts anything is warmth, warm hearts, warm therapy, warm a uh, warm approach to yourself, whatever it might be. And then it's like, what's on the other side of that portal? What's on the other side of that wound? Is that, you know, I'm 55 years old and I'm five, you know? So it's like really yeah. allowing that five-year-old appropriately, of course, to come out. So I would say, look at what you used to do as a child. If you can't remember, if you were like an over-responsible child, then spend time with children or animals, our greatest teachers. You know what I mean? They'll they'll get you, they'll give you some clues as to what is is worth exploring. And also anything creative, anything that involves your hands. If you're somebody that lives, as I call it, neck up, then you want to get with your hands and get into, you know, whether it's pottery or going out in nature and, you know, playing around with the earth and all of that stuff. You just do creative things and you do it with an energy of kind of, playfulness and it doesn't have to be perfect please not perfect so I was speaking with a friend last week and she grew up in a war-threatened country and she's had IBS for her whole life and then I was reading your book in preparation for this interview and you talk about how actually IBS is a symptom potentially of heartbreak and I was wondering why is the stomach so associated with past trauma yeah, I mean, the stomach and the, the lower back especially are often where we carry a lot of unprocessed, you know, emotions and unprocessed stuff. But I think it just depends on the, the personality because I think some people, 
they get more neck, jaw and head issues. So their pain kind of manifests up here. And then other people, kind of more earthy people, they tend to get more, you know, they might carry a bit of extra weight or they might get more digestive issues and then get, you know, lose a lot of weight. And and then you get the people that often just get a lot of lower back pain. And so it just depends, I think, on, on you know, the sort of personality types of people as to where the pain will go. I've worked with so many people where they say, you know, and they're like in their mid 30s or something, they say, oh, I'm not very sexual. And I'm like, really? I don't buy it, you know. <laughs> I and mean, of course, some people are genuinely asexual, but they say, oh, I used to be. That's the clue. Mm. And then when you dig a little with them, what it is, because if you think about the the body, it's like the sexual energy in the lower kind of area of the body, yeah, and mm. that's where your sexual flow is in round, round about the genitals. And then on top of that, in your gut, in your lower back, is sits your rage. And so it's almost mm. like that anger, that rage is blocking the flow of your life force because sexual energy is life force. And so this is why when I worked, you know, delivering the bridge, we had to get them to sign, Poppy, an agreement that they wouldn't basically have sex with each other because once you lift that anger and some of that rage out of the way, people's sexual energy starts to flow pretty well. <laughs> and then they're starting, you know, and they're on this retreat and then it's like what happens in Vegas states, you know, and it's like, no, 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 you know. It's like keep that sexual energy for yourself and that's the kind of more tantric side of things. But But it's really amazing how many people, when they lift the lid of their kind of anger, which as women, especially we're conditioned and socialized not to do, not very pretty to get all messy and angry, is it? Mm -hmm. But when you safely release anger, watch out because <laughs> the, the va-va-voom comes back. So, yes, there's so many different ways that, that pain manifests, like the IBS is a classic, and that's often chronic fear. You know, my experience, that's where people have lived under a, or even been born into an environment and I don't know if that's true for your friend but been born into a vi an environment where they were kind of born fearful and then that can always of course manifest in in that IBS kind of way. How do you supercharge your resilience? One of the main ways you supercharge your resilience is by exposure therapy essentially it's by safely pushing yourself out of your comfort zone so you're like you're uncomfortable but you don't feel unsafe and then you're doing things challenging yourself to do things that are a little bit uncomfortable you know what I call the bum clench stuff it's the bit where we speak up when we're speaking truth to power and the bum's like ooh, you know what this does is it shows you yes I was afraid yes it was difficult yes my voice shook as an example when I spoke truth to power and I did it, you know, and that's the bit that we often, when we're still in the inner critic phase, we just go, oh, it was a disaster. It was a total, and it's like, no, I did it, you know. And when you really, I, I get people to have an anchor book, positive anchors, where they write down every behavior, every action, every thought, every word spoken that was in connection with their new way of being. And then what happens is then you you basically, over time, that really builds your resilience because you know that you're someone that can live through dark times, you know. And, and another really key way that people don't like at all, um, but it's in the book, as you know, is about feedback. If you don't 
put yourself in a position where you will invite from appropriate people family tend to be not the right people because they see you through a you know a sibling lens or a daughter lens or whatever but when you have people in your life where you can say can you give me some feedback about how you experience me as in this phase of my life this isn't about criticism this is about someone saying to you yeah what i've noticed lately as an example what i've noticed lately donna is that you you know, you've kind of slipped back into a bit more of your isolation, as an example, you know, and what that does is you when you allow yourself to receive feedback, Mm. you realise that you don't die, you know, because we associate it with criticism as a child often, and we associate it in a patriarchal society as judgment. And then when you find the right people, sometimes it's a coach or a therapist or, um, you know, a really good friend. And then they say to you, you know, have you considered this? And it's not about advice. It's not about saying even that it's their right. It's just about saying, you know, I've noticed that, that it seems to me you're behaving in this way. And then what happens, you really start to get resilient. And it's like a supercharge of it. You're like, okay, yeah, and that was helpful. I noticed I didn't get reactive. And... I'm more resilient as a result of it. It's a win-win. So I really encourage people to get feedback. Your last chapter focuses on the spiritual dimension. Mm. And why did you leave this to step nine? And why did you want to include this in the book? I wanted to kind of fit it in because really my belief is that the, and I talk about this in the book, that there's fundamentally these two major phases. So the first phase of our kind of, human experience is very much more egoic led and that's not a bad thing necessarily but it's very much you know when I get the partner and the house and the car and the job and the money and the shoes (laughs) whatever it might be when I get those things it's going to uh, fill me up and of course we do that and some of it's rewarding and helpful but we learn and we grow a lot as part of that but that's very much outside in and then phase two is when you really start to shed this is where we go into decluttering getting rid of things that we don't need we don't need all this stuff we don't need all these shoes we don't need even sometimes all these people that no longer really nourish our soul and so we, it's really phase two is more of a shedding And then in that second phase of life, it's really when we start to drop into meaning and purpose, when we've healed the wounds, when we've recognized and joined the dots about what happened in that first phase, um, we then start to move into a deepening, you know, and this is when we start to really look at, you know, how can I love and serve more in the world? And, And the reason I left it to the end is people aren't necessarily ready for that until they've done the grief work. Till you've grieved what happened to you, you might then, like I did, go, oh, load of woo-woo, load of nonsense. And it's like, because this is too, like, wah, 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 it's too painful. But then once I tended to those wounds and allowed the time and space for them to heal, I was in a space where I could say, okay, inside out, you know, what is it from this nourished, healed place can I offer the world? So beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Where is the best place for people to find you? Your book has just come out. Where is the best place to find it? And where's the best place for people to find you? And also, can you potentially share a little bit about the bridge if people actually want to do that in person as well? So yes, the book can be found on any of your usual places. You know, you can buy the book in any, you know, independent bookshop or any of the big 
you know, Amazons, etc. whatever tickles your fancy, it's out there. Just Google the bridge Donna Lancaster and you will find your way to it. In terms of connecting with me, I am a, a big a writer and poster on Instagram. So my account is at Donna Lanks. That's Donna and then L-A-N-C-S at Donna Lanks. And then in terms of my work, I am no longer offering the bridge retreat. So that closed in the pandemic. So, um, but I do offer a range of alternatives. So we have various workshops coming up, one called the grief space, one called becoming an elder. And I do a regular workshop for women called naked, which is about living emotionally naked without masks. And I have an online spiritual community called Deepening Into Life. And all of that can be found out. Um, you can find out about that on deepeningintolife.com, which is my website. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.